Okay, welcome to another edition of Cultural Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures and see what's going on in other places in the world. My name is Nosa Yare. Uh, welcome to another episode. Today I'm interviewing my very first couple, no, I shouldn't say couple, my very first married couple because I think I interviewed uh, <laughs> some people who were engaged in the past. Uh, today I have Felice and Peter Hardy from the UK. How are you guys doing? We're good, thank you. And thank you for having us on your podcast. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Before the episode, we're just talking about how things were, you know, with the coronavirus and everything. From what I understand, you guys live in Winchester. How far is Winchester from uh, London? It's about um, 70 miles. And it's a nice old city. It's a medieval city, quite very small. It's really a couple of main streets. And it was the capital of, of England for 250 years. Really? Yeah. That Long Winchester. Time. Long time ago, Got it's it. famous these days for Winchester Cathedral. There's a, a, a song about Winchester Cathedral from the 1960s, I think, and um, it's a, it's a really nice town to live in. Little medieval cobbled streets, some really old buildings. It was a Roman town originally, and uh, Roman, and then Saxon, and then Norman. Uh, so it's got a long history. And it's very easy to get to London from here. You just take the train direct. Takes about an hour. Got it, got it. And thank you for using miles, not kilometers. Like my head has been this whole Corona. So I moved from DC. I'm originally from Nigeria. Most of my uh, listeners know we use kilometers also. But moving to the US, you know, when we talk about temperature a lot and we're like, oh, it's 90 today. I'm like, is that Celsius? Is that Fahrenheit? Can you guys please? <laughs> we can do both. We do both. Yeah, obviously, obviously you guys are well-traveled and, you know, you must be used to both uh, metric tables. But, you know, we'll get into that um in a few minutes, uh, I must say, but uh, just a little bit about Felice and Peter, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you both are journalists, uh, podcasters, editors. You love skiing, and you talk about and write about and document skiing adventures and other types of adventures all over the world, correct? That's correct, yeah. We started our own podcast in March this year. Uh, it's called actionpacktravel.com. And before that, we also, yeah, we have a ski website and we are freelance writers and we love skiing. So we come to Denver quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you guys are more versed with the Denver ski culture than I am. And I, I live here, so <laughs> that must be a plus. But how did you, let me start from uh, Felice. Uh, how did you start? How did you discover skiing? Was this something you did before you met Peter or, you know, from when you were young, you were immersed in the culture of skiing? Yeah, my mother uh, came from Austria, where they have lots of skiing. And so as a kid, I went skiing in Austria every year. And my family are all very keen skiers. And so I just grew up with it. It's sort of the, the main sport that we played as a family. Got it. Oh, so your mother moved or your parents moved from Austria to Winchester. Is that correct? Yeah, my mother moved from Vienna, capital of Austria, to London, first of all. And well, she died, sadly, some years ago. But and I moved from London to Winchester. But, um, you know, my love of skiing has come from my family who, who were from Austria. Got it. Got it. I'm sorry to hear about your mom. Um, Peter, what about you? Um, was it like a similar story or... I went on a family ski holiday when I was about 12 years old, and uh, I thought it was great. And uh, I liked the aqua ski, actually, then, more than the ski, because it was good party time. And um, I, so I went for several years uh, for winter holidays, and then um, I went and did other things in the world. I became a journalist. I traveled a lot. I was a foreign correspondent. And I didn't really ski again until I was about 30. And then 
I thought, I went on one trip and I thought, hey, this is really what I want to do. And that actually is what I've been doing ever since for what is now a very long time. Got it, got it. Excellent, excellent. So you, you both were exposed to the sport in some form uh, when you were kids or when you were younger. In that case, even though Peter didn't get into it till he was 30, but at least you had some knowledge of it uh, when you were much younger. Um, when I think about the UK, and I've interviewed a lot of people from the UK, uh, I think my UK following is, is steadily growing. I don't necessarily think about snow that much. I think about rain. Like, okay, maybe it rains a lot in the UK, yes. but that's one stereotype that's just been at the back of my mind. Okay, there's maybe there is some snow, obviously, but when I think about skiing and snow, um, how do you do that in the UK? Maybe not in London, but what are the popular ways to indulge in skiing in the UK where you are? There is actually skiing in the UK, in Scotland. But if you live in the south of England, it really takes quite a long time to get there and it's quite expensive. It's much easier to get to France um, and it's a bit cheaper too and I think better skiing there. So we go to mainly to France and other places in Europe, Italy, Austria, Switzerland a bit, yeah. Wow, that, that sounds like... Uh, so for people who are you know, used to traveling a lot and exploring all these places and used to doing outdoorsy stuff, I mean, you have a podcast called Action, Action Pack. Like, how is the COVID situation treating you? Like, are you still finding time to go out there? I, I can imagine there's a lot of social distancing in some of these mountains or you're just being restricted because some of these facilities have been totally shut down. Well, from the middle of March onwards, literally overnight, uh, everything stopped. Wow. All ski resorts closed uh, across Europe. By the end of March, they were all closed, apart from in Sweden and one or two other places like that. And we couldn't travel. So um, we had to stop skiing. So we thought, hey, what do we do now? Let's start this podcast. Um, we've been planning it for some time, in fact, and we decided on uh, uh, Friday the 13th of, uh, of March, which was not the most auspicious day on which to start a new uh, business. But th that said, it was exactly what was needed because it was a very real uh, opportunity for people to uh, listen to podcasts more during lockdown. And uh, we haven't stopped since. It's been very busy. And skiing, well, people are now skiing again in Europe. On, because they ski in summer on the glaciers where there's snow all year round. So there is now skiing again and people wear masks when they go up the lifts. Got it, got it. And it's funny, when and you say glaciers... Sorry, go on. Yeah, when you say glaciers, the first thing that comes to my mind is taxes because there's a popular tax preparation service here in the U.S. called Glaciers Tax. And their logo is actually like the mountain, like the glaciers. So uh, <laughs> it occurs to me that that was a ski reference to just now. Um, so yeah, so you guys are kind of like still keeping in touch with your passion by documenting and recording and being journalistic about it, even though you can't participate in it right now. So for someone like me, picture this. This is NOSA 10 years ago. I grew up in Nigeria. We never have snow. Uh, maybe a couple of hailstorms here and there in the northern part of the country, but we never have snow. Want to explain, especially owing to the fact that this is an audio recording. Most people might have the idea of skiing, but what is skiing exactly? Is snowboarding the same as skiing? If I use those, uh, what what they call those, uh, like snowmobile kind of thing, is that still skiing? What about if I use a sled? What is does skiing have a traditional definition? Those are all snow sports, but they're all different, yeah. Skiing and snowboarding are similar. Skiing is two sort of wooden-ish planks, one under each foot. Snowboarding is one big board like a surfboard. So snowboarding is actually probably quicker to learn. Skiing takes a bit longer to learn. Wait, 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 really? Snowboarding is quicker? I would imagine that that's a little complicated. No, it's actually easier to learn. Oh, wow. It, it, 
this learning curve is probably only three or four days to really get yourself around the mountain, whereas skiing will take uh, a week and a bit more to get around. But uh, a lot of people do both. They, they wake up in the morning, see what the conditions are like, and decide whether it's better to snowboard today or to ski today. What's the, what are the conditions? What do you look for to decide if it's a well, snowboarding or a skiing day? Uh, deep, fresh snow, powder snow, then snowboarding is really good. Uh, if it's packed hard snow, you're better off on skis. Just a question of technique. And people who've um, done some skateboarding and surfing before, they would probably find snowboarding easier. I know about surfers, sorry. Uh, yeah, a lot of snuffers, surfers do take to snowboarding. And it, it's, a, it's a very, it's like, it has its own culture in a sense, especially particularly here in the U.S. I live in Denver, so uh, some people call it, you know, hippie country, you know, things like that. Uh, a lot of people have these really expensive passes to like go up into the slopes every single weekend. And you wake up like 4 a.m. on a Saturday and people are already on the road, you know, the, the road is blocked and everyone is driving up to the mountains to, to kind of like ski. So I'd imagine it's a very addictive sport even though it's not something i participate in a lot of time peter what interests you what fascinates you about this sport in particular is it the freedom you feel when you're like kind of like gliding down the mountain is it the interaction of like-minded people you get to interact with is it the, the fact that you know skiing in all these different places is automatically leading you to travel and see all these places well what are your interests uh, what interests you about the sport well, you're right, it is very addictive. And the reason for this is that you have complete freedom when going down the mountain and a sense of loss of gravity. And in, it depends on the snow conditions, but if it's um, uh, perfect, fresh powder snow, you, uh, you have uh, a sense of loss of gravity as you glide down the mountain. And it's a feeling of ultimate freedom. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing like it for me. I go back and do it all the time. I, I even uh, propose to police on skis. Actually, in Mammoth in California. Really? That, that must be interesting. Okay, you, you've, uh, Felice, uh, how was, what, did that come as a surprise or how was that feeling? Um, no, not really a surprise because we were living together anyway, but he proposed to me and before he could get the answer, he fell over. <laughs> <laughs> that, that must be a nice story for, for the grandkids. Somewhere. How did you guys meet? Let's take it back a notch. Um, how did you guys get to meet uh, initially? Yeah, we met skiing. So we were both, because we're both journalists, we were going on ski press trips. Um, that means groups of journalists who fam get trip. a fam trip, I think you call it. And um, they take groups out who then go and try out a resort and find out all about the facilities and the hotels and things like that. And we were on the same fam trip and that's how we met. Got it. Uh, where, where was this and when was this? This was in Austria, and it was more years ago than, than I like to remember. <laughs> <laughs> in a resort called Overtown, where they filmed Help. The Beatles film Help was filmed there, there's skiing and that. Got it, got it. And have you found that, you know, over time, your, your marriage has been made stronger through, you know, like-minded, through similar interests? I mean, you were both journalists, you both love skiing, like you can participate in all these activities together. How important is that for a marriage? Does it help or it really depends on the personality of the other person? It definitely helps, yeah. I think if you're a really keen skier or snowboarder, then you really need to have a partner that does the same. You can do one or other. I mean, we know people where one person is a skier and their partner is a snowboarder, and that works fine as well. But, you know, if you're really addicted to that one of those sports, you both want to do it together. You don't want to go off and do it on your own. And you need to do it to the same sort of level. Oh, really? So here's a controversial question. Who's the better skier? 
Well, let me go back to the beginning of this. So when we first met, and uh, you know, then a few weeks later, we decided that we were going to try and make a go of this in life. And uh, Felice said, well, look, um, the first thing you've got to do is become a better skier than you are. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've skied since about the age of three. So, and I yeah, thought Peter, was... Peter had a break there before 30. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but now since then, we ski so many, I don't know, so many, um, uh, literally thousands of days. So, uh, we, we both skied at much the same standard. Do you travel with all your ski equipment? So, I, I don't know what they call the skis. Do they call them skis? I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you yeah. travel with your skis or you just rent when you get to the location? Depends where you're going, actually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, it, it depends on the kind of resort you're going to. If we're going to the States, we would rent skis when we got there because the standard of ski rental is very high. But if you're going to a, a small resort in, or perhaps someone in a relatively more obscure country, uh, we'd definitely take skis with us because you don't know what you're going to get. But we, the most important thing is your own boots. You need to have your own boots. And then but boots are more important than, than skis, quite honestly. Yeah, like someone was talking to me about that. So I have someone I work with named Jeremiah. He he goes up to the slopes like pre-COVID uh, every weekend. And he was talking about how if your boot is too tight, you can sprain your ankle and you have to have like some room in the boot. And that helps with balancing when you're in the ski. Uh, it didn't make sense to me, but I guess. I wouldn't quite agree with that. You need your oh, really? boot very tight fit inside, but a comfortable fit when you have when you fit boots you either have what's called a race fit which is if you're doing it for racing which is extremely tight and uncomfortable to ski on just for pleasure or you just have a normal fit which should be really comfortable really comfortable but tight because when when you move your legs and you move the boot you want them to move at the same time yeah yeah you want it to move at the same time because that was my thought exactly but i guess you know he's more a little more experienced than me so maybe i didn't just understand the, what he was explaining particularly okay so let's see i'm not I'm a, I'm a young um you know guy who wants to take up skiing what's is the soft what what are the low-hanging fruits i can start with that um to purchase equipment and maybe this is why a lot of people don't take up skiing i would imagine that you know it's it's a lot more expensive to purchase like speed ski equipment and travel to where you can ski than just you know buying like a, a football or a basketball and just bouncing around the street but what are the low-hanging fruits like how do i start what do you, what's your advice well i definitely wouldn't buy equipment straight away because you never know you might not like it mm. um so definitely rent or borrow you know well rent for equipment and borrow the clothing if you don't have it already i mean you probably have a jacket that would be waterproof um and but you know if you can borrow the ski pants from a friend um and that's about and you need gloves again you can borrow all that if you have a friend that skis already just till you know that you like it and then maybe start investing in as we said the boots first of all how much can these set you back, like the boots, uh, particularly the skis and maybe any, any kind of clothing? Like how much uh, collectively will this set you back for like a medium priced gear? As much as you want. It's like a lot of things in life. The, the quality is usually the more expensive, the better to a large degree, the more the better it is. But uh, you can spend, you, know, you can buy stuff really cheaply in, in uh, discount stores and things. Or you can, you know, as you get more experience, you're going to want particular types of skis it, it's expensive sport there's no getting away from it the skiing is really expensive mm. but, but you but and also uh, it depends on where you go skiing now in the states uh the price of a lift ticket is really high it's up to five times sorry what's what's a lift ticket 
uh, the, the the ticket to uh, you 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 pay to go up the mountain. You pay to go oh on the lift itself. And uh, so no? you buy a ticket for a day or for a week if you're going to stay there. Got it. And, and that is uh, really expensive in the states, whereas in Europe, in some countries, it's uh, considerably considerably cheap. So you choose where you're going to go skiing. Um, and uh, and it, it, but it is possible to even go to places like uh, Vale and Aspen. It's possible mm. to go there and ski on a relatively low budget. You've got to be, you've got to think about where you're going to eat and how you're going to do this. But you can get away with quite a lot. But the first time you go, I wouldn't choose those resorts because you don't need that amount of terrain. They're huge, Vale and Aspen, and for a beginner you're going to be paying more because of the huge range of, you know, huge mountain. It would be better to go to somewhere small that's near Denver, I would say, like maybe Winter Park, that sort of thing, or Loveland. Yeah, something like that. Because they'll be a bit cheaper too, because you're not paying for this lift ticket that covers an enormous area. You're just paying for a lift ticket that covers a small area. So I would start with one of those. And you do need to have some lessons. You know, it's essential to, one of those things, you can't just go skiing and ski. It doesn't work. Like that. Oh, so it can be self-taught? Mm. Well, you can more for snowboarding. So snowboarding is probably a lot cheaper because a lot of people just have a couple of lessons for snowboarding and then that's all they need. And the boots are, I think, are cheaper too. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, you can walk around in those boots easily, whereas you can't in ski boots because they're hard and pretty not that comfortable on the whole. Snowboarding boots are more like, um, well, they're just well, it's softer, more comfortable. Softer, more comfortable yeah. Got it, got it. And all these places uh, Peter mentioned are all in Colorado, um, Aspen, Vale, Loveland. And I think the X Games actually held in Aspen, if I'm correct, a couple of months ago. I think that was a few months before COVID, if I'm correct, uh, which is kind of like extreme games uh, on the snow. Um, speaking of the X Games, like when I watch a lot of movies, uh, James Bond in particular, they have all these stunts on the snow. How how realistic is that? Like I watch the X Games and I see stunts, uh, particularly with snowboarding, but with skis where you have people like kind of like uh, do like a flip on the skis and you have people skiing without the handlebars and they're holding guns and skiing just that way. Is that realistic or that's just the uh, Hollywood and the movie industry? It's a mixture of both. It's Hollywood, but it's also um, uh, fairly realistic, some of it. They, they, some of the stunts they do are, are pretty weird. And the, the biggest misconception is that there's something called heli-skiing, helicopter skiing. Mm. And helicopter skiing, people think, uh, so you let me get this right. You go in a helicopter and you jump out of the helicopter. No, you don't. No, you do not. <laughs> no? <laughs> no. You, helicopter is used to, to reach uh, parts of the mountain where there are no, no lifts. Uh, and it's done particularly in places like um, British Columbia um, and uh, um, Alberta, where you can, uh, there are huge mountain ranges and uh, you take a helicopter you land the helicopter lands on top of the mountain there's just four or five of you in a group with a guide and then you ski down and then the helicopter picks you up and takes you somewhere else that's heli skiing it doesn't involve jumping out of helicopter. and they you probably see heli skiing at some point in a james bond film you always see it always in the james bond films they are real on the whole oh yeah there are some pretty good skiers who can i mean we can ski down without poles ski poles there's yeah, uh, like that, that, that was surprising to me. You have people holding guns, no poles, and you're skiing. I'm like, that's, 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 all yeah, that's not that's not so difficult. But the people who do flips and things, there are people who can do that. 
Um, a lot, so, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, pretty, pretty uh, interesting. Let, let me talk about your podcast. So you have a podcast called Action Pack Travel and... Uh, initially like i thought this was like a i don't know why I, maybe i watched too much action movies but this is typically about the outdoors so you've interviewed uh cyclists movie stuntmen marathon runners skiers of course um what is one important thing you said you you can say you've learned from some of these individuals since you started recording in march well we originally uh we, obviously because in march we couldn't travel ourselves so we thought the best thing to do would be to interview people who have traveled extensively to weird places. And we have a, a small circle of friends who we started uh, interviewing them. Uh, and then that's expanded and we met other people and done it. I mean, there's some pretty strange interviews we've had. And I think we've learned a lot from this. We've learned particularly about polar explorers. Some of these people who go these huge distances. We had a guy who um, uh, he, he uh, went in a kayak from Greenland to Scotland. What? Something like 56 days or something. Alone? He well, a kayak, so. Two two wow. Kayak. That sounds dangerous. Well, what path did he, how, how did he get uh, into Internet's a bit. Come back. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I was like, that That sounds dangerous or, I don't know, extreme. Yeah. It's pretty extreme. So we've, yeah, we've met some fascinating people on only online, you know, on Zoom, not in real life. But um, it's amazing some of the things people do. We met, a, uh, we, we had a, my favorite, I think, probably was a, a gemologist who uh, is work, very famous in Britain. And uh, she's on a TV show. And she has spent her life uh, researching diamonds and sapphires and rubies. And she's been all over the world going down mines and things. And then she's, in more recent years, working for an auction house. She's gone around looking at valuable stones, uh, assessing the value of stones for people who own them. And uh, she tells some fascinating stories of suddenly coming across a diamond worth $5 million, that sort of thing. Wow. Um, which the person didn't realize it was, it was even a diamond. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And then we had, we had one man who um, had cycled from London to Brisbane in Australia, which, it, how many days did that take? It took him um, 416 days. That's more than a year. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Okay. Pretty, pretty fascinating people you guys have met. Uh, I might be interested in talking to the geomologist, to be honest, because I've been looking for someone who I can talk to about these crystals. So the crystal craze over the last few years has started to become a big thing. And I'm kind of like asking myself, is this the same thing as the diamond industry where I, I don't know if like there's an argument of if there's an inherent value in these crystals and if scarcity is driving up the prices and things like that. So it'll be interesting to talk to like a professional about things like that. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about... Um, earlier in your life. So when you were both journalists, from what I understand, Peter worked for The Telegraph, right, alongside other places, and you both are now podcasters. Like, what is the, the difference? Because sometimes you don't meet people who have done both of them. There, there are a bunch of people who have, but you know, some people hold dear to like traditional media, so newspapers, TV, some people are fully new school, like social media. You're kind of like in the middle because you've experienced, uh, you know, 
uh, being involved in both classes. What are what do you think is the difference with uh, this whole new like social media, podcasting, Zoom recording, remote recording, that kind of thing? Uh, is there any difference, or it still boils down like the ability to tell a good story on just different mediums? Well, it's, in all cases, it's still interviewing people, finding out about people. I, I've spent my my life as a journalist, mainly as a newspaper journalist, and I was a foreign correspondent and a war correspondent for many many years. So I went all over the world from the end of Vietnam onwards. Wow. And uh, that's a kind of, sort of strange existence. You, 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 you really only want to mix with people doing the same thing because you find yourself being able to, not being able to associate with other people. And I did that for a long time. And then one day decided I should change direction altogether. And I, I went back to, I went and sat on a, a desk and told other people to do it for a while. And then uh, when I'd met Felice, we decided to set up our own journalism business together which was largely about skiing, but other travel as well. We do, we do different freelance travel all over the world. And, um, and then it's much more recent. I did have a one year in, in, in radio, worked in, in commercial radio as an editor, but that wasn't really doing much interviewing or anything. So now we, we've had to switch from uh, writing to talking. But I absolutely love podcasting because I think you get a bit, well, we'd been journalists for years and years and a lot of newspapers are dying. People don't buy them anymore. Um, everything's online. Um, and suddenly, you know, I started listening to a lot of podcasts and thought, they're great. Um, better than radio because you can choose what you listen to at whatever mm-hmm. time you want. And um, yeah, I just love it. Yeah, me too. I, I think it's really, really interesting medium. And um, in America, it's so big, huge in America. It's yeah. still in its infancy in Europe. Yeah, a lot of places outside the U.S. I think uh, podcasting, advertising spend on podcasting was like 600 and something million uh, last year compared to like 20 billion spent on radio. Uh, but that's just in the U.S. Like in other parts of the world, like podcasting is a more much smaller community. So everyone I've talked to from the U.K. happen to know each other. So I've talked to Zubi, I've talked to Zara Helmi, talked to Abedesi in the tech industry. I they happen to know each other because like a smaller place. But in the U.S., well, you're, you're correct for these uh, podcasting and his niches is just like a huge seven point. So if you are all about extreme sport, all about skiing, like there are categories for you, there are podcasts for you. If you're all about, you know, baked goods and whatnot, like there are categories for you. And hopefully, you know, it can become a much bigger industry because people like me, like I hope to take this more serious, uh, you know, in the coming years. But let me talk to Peter a little bit about being a war correspondent. So were you a war correspondent for The Telegraph or was for another publication? I was working for a newspaper called The Daily Express. London, which used to be a very well-known paper. It's slightly declined in recent years. But um, I traveled uh, all over the world for them for many, many years. Got it. Was this, were you uh, kind of like put on those assignments or you kind of like volunteered to be part of those assignments? No, I'd be, I mean, a combination of both, but I worked for the newspaper. So my editor would send me to somewhere uh, or I'd suggest that I went somewhere. So I spent a lot of time in um, in, um, in in East Africa, and I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and all over the place, really. But you know, coming and going, it's not all you know. War reporting, I say, it's not all. It's not not all guns and bullets. It's mostly uh, being many hundred miles away from the fighting and uh, trying to interview people about what's going on, trying to discover what's going on in a situation that's changing all the time. So that that's it's interesting, fascinating. It's not um, not very good for uh, relationships or anything. So. I'd given that all up long before I met Felice. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. I mean, once once uh, a lot of people think about wall transplant, they think about, you know, the blue bulletproof vest with the press thing and, you know, your, your helmet and being, you know, right there in the field in dangerous situations, like trying to get a story. Uh, but did you experience any kind of like harrowing moments, any like, uh, you know, close calls while you're like Vietnam or Yemen, anything that you can recall from uh, your time as a wall person? Yeah, plenty. I could talk to you all day about this, but I, uh, I, um, in the days of um, uh, East Africa and Idi Amin in Uganda, I was, uh, I was sentenced to death for spying in Uganda, which is... Uh, wow. There aren't many of us around who've been sentenced to death and are still ticking all these years later. But um, it's a long story, but of course I wasn't spying or anything else, but it was, uh, I ended up in uh, one of um, Idi Amin's nasty little concentration camps, and uh, uh, I got away with it. I talked my way out of it. You talked yeah. your way out of a concentration camp. How did that happen? Was it still in power, or this was after he had passed on? Well, he was just trying to get information through. people. You were dealing with people who uh, didn't. It, it was a complicated situation because there was a coup about to take place inside Uganda, an attempted coup. And the people who, who had arrested me wanted me out of the way. Um, the, uh, Idi Amin himself didn't know I'd been arrested. And I was aware of that. So I kept trying to explain to the people who got me that uh, uh, really they ought to uh, get in touch with Didi. I mean, otherwise their lives would be forfeit. And um, in the end, one thing or another led to me getting in touch with Didi. I mean, and I got away with it. Wow. Did, how long did you continue to be a war correspondent after that? Did you like give that up and do other things or you still kept on going for a few more years? Another 10 years after that. Wow. Wow. Felice, was your experience kind of like similar or you were kind of like uh, other, you were journalistic in other areas? Yeah, no. Well, I hadn't met him at that stage and I worked on a mag. I just worked on lifestyle magazines um, and then a ski magazine. No, I haven't done anything as uh, dangerous or exciting as, as Peter has. I don't think exciting is a word. I mean, we, we, in, in, in Britain, uh, my generation grew up with uh, the IRA and the war in Northern Ireland. So when I was uh, 21, 22, um, I found myself suddenly in Northern Ireland uh, in what was a very unpleasant civil war. And civil wars are the most difficult ones to report on because you don't know who's wearing the white hats and who's wearing the black hats. You know, this, mm. it's, uh, it's impossible to say who is on either side. So it, it became really difficult. And... Uh, uh, I survived all that, learned lots of things, and then as a result of that, uh, someone somewhere decided they should send me off to somewhere else, and off I went. So you go from one thing to another, and it sort of continues like that. I'm sure with experiences like that, like skiing must be a piece of cake. Have you ever been intimidated by any particular terrain, or no? I think skiing is much more dangerous than walk, walk, being a walk <laughs> What? <laughs> Yeah, you can injure yourself pretty easily skiing. That's the trouble. That's that's funny. That's funny. So, what experience have you had skiing? Have you? Um, I, I don't. I don't understand. I I might not know how the terrain is. Is everything like just going down a slope, or there are twists and turns in certain areas? Can you like veer off track and like run into a tree, or maybe be attacked by a bear, or collide? Like, what are some of the the dangers? I haven't heard of anyone being attacked by a bear. No. But, um, I've you know, heard of people being attacked by a moose. In the, in, um, oh, wow. But, uh, uh, no, not by a bear. I haven't heard. Not skiing. The bear, during winter, the bears are usually sleeping. But, yeah, there's some, you can get to some very tricky terrain where, you know, you can, if you fall, you know, you wouldn't stop. So you have to be careful. And if you go on something difficult, really difficult, you need to go with a guide, someone who really knows the area. Mm -hmm. don't, sort of, don't set off by yourself. 
ever that's dangerous. Yeah. Don't set out by yourself. Go with yeah, someone. Yeah, you should always ski with. You should always ski with another person. I think. Mm. So I guess I guess that makes sense. If you leave the uh, the marked area, which you can do in Europe easily, um, you, you should always ski with a with a with a guide. Yeah, a qual a guide you know who knows uh, the area is really good to have with you. This is a thing. There's things like avalanche danger, which is really important to know about to know about different snow conditions and what's which when the snow is safe and when it's unstable. Just mm. take a lot of experience. And I, I can imagine that differs in different places of the world, right? Yeah. Got it. But you wouldn't encounter any of that if you're just starting out because, you know, there's special terrain just for beginners, which is easy, and you wouldn't fall off a cliff or anything like that. Fall off a cliff? <laughs> 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 Got it. Got it. Well, what are some of the most fascinating places you guys have visited? I mean, I was checking out your website, and I saw uh, some places listed like the Val de Serre in France. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I actually do the uh, the marketing for Valdezere. It's the most popular ski resort in uh, in in for for British people in in Europe, uh, uh, and it's one of the most popular that there is. And uh, I do the marketing for um, for Valdezere in Britain and indeed in America as well. How how do you do the marketing? Like when you say you do the marketing, um, you you maybe contribute to maintaining the public image and getting people to come to the resort. Do you do that on the internet? How how do you go about that? Yeah, it's correct. It's a combination of things. I take journalists out to the resort, mm. uh, tell them all about it, um, talk to all the tour operators who send people to the resort, uh, and uh, promote. And then we go to the country concerned, in this case, UK and America, and promote uh, uh, individual events with journalists. Got it. So it used to be used to be that the journalists who went out to ski resorts were newspaper journalists and magazine journalists. Then it moved to bloggers who were going out and being um, hosted by the resort so that they could see what it was like. And now, hopefully, it'll be podcasters who are invited mm. to resorts to go and have a look around and write, um, you know, make a show about it. Oh, wow. yeah, very much so. And podcasting is, a, is the, the new medium for all this sort of thing. Oh, that'll be so swell. That'll be so swell. Like getting to travel to all these places, uh, having all your expenses paid and uh, like documenting in the podcast. Like yeah. that'd be pretty interesting. Like I've actually thought about that in a way, like working with, um, so my, my, my podcast, obviously cultural class podcast, you know, we interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures, get to learn about, you know, people uh, that come from other backgrounds, uh, count like being that bridge between cultures so i've always thought about hey you know if there's a way i can take a year off and like elias with um like the they call it different names in different countries but kind of like the cultural secretary uh kind of thing different countries so kind of like a tourist show like just go to all the different places blog about my experiences that'd be pretty cool but hey with covid i don't think uh that's happening anytime soon. Um, Felice, do you also have like the same places, uh, like what fascinating places or what places have you been, do you consider like breathtaking or fascinating as far as, far as skiing is concerned? For skiing, probably the most amazing place I've been to is Japan on the northern wow. island of Japan. And that is incredible because you have to drive very long distance to get to the, the best skiing. And so it's not very full. It's not very full of people. And um, you know, everything is different. You can't, well, we can't 
read the language. So, um, you know, if you have a menu when you're going to eat, you can't understand what you're about to eat. You don't know. And um, the culture is just so different from anything I've ever experienced before. And that was fascinating. And the skiing, you ski between sort of bamboos and bamboo trees and... Um, hot springs. And there are natural hot springs as well. You can swim wow. in. Yeah, people just stop going down the mountain. They stop. There's a pool with a vast temperature water. They strip off their ski clothes and jump on in. Wow. Uh, that, that's great. But getting out is not much fun. It's very cold. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. Skiing in Japan, that's something I've never, I've never thought about. I even knew uh, kind of like existed. Um, Peter, real quick, you, you talked about, you know, marketing for the Val d'Isere and things like that. So I don't know about how it is in the ski community globally, but particularly here in the U.S., a lot of resorts are complaining that millennials and, you know, Generation Z are not getting into skiing as much as, you know, the older generation. A lot of ski resorts have had to declare bankruptcy and close down. Like, how, how do you think, um, like, is this your experience, first and foremost, that younger people are not getting into skiing as much as older people were? And, and how do you think uh, this can be compensated for in the future? Because we wouldn't want to see, like, the sport solely die off. What do you think we can do to attract young people and people like me who have no experience whatsoever with skiing? Well, I always give the example of Ischgl in Austria, which is a well-known Austrian resort. And uh, they have a, a huge music festival at the beginning of every winter and at the end of every winter. And they've had, you know, the biggest names in the world from the Rolling Stones and I can't think who are fan, but they've had, they've, they've had every big name you can imagine. And um, uh, so the, 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 the idea being that you have a free concert, but you go there and you've got to pay for your lift pass, lift ticket to get up the mountain because it's up the mountain where it is. And the people who come to it are obviously a lot of them skiers, but also many, many people who aren't skiers. And they come along, young people come along and they uh, listen to the music and they look around them and think, hey, this place is fun. These people are really enjoying themselves. Next year, I'm going to come back and try it for myself. And it's worked amazingly well for them. So you need, and, and other resorts have copied them around the Alps. So trying to introduce music with skiing is definitely a very good way of getting young people. One of the biggest problems that we have with, with uh, uh, a lack of young people is that it used to be a part of the education. It used to be considered in, in Britain, schools could take a, a class out to the Alps for a week uh, and, uh, and then see it as being part of education. These days... The world is different. You can't do that anymore. So mm. a lot of people aren't going on school trips, and therefore their first experience of skiing has to be when they've made, got a job and made some money before they can do it. I don't know if maybe in Denver it's part of the education for school kids to go into the mountains for the day. It could well be. It certainly is in France. It's because certainly in France, the schools that are near mountain, you know, near ski resorts, they will take kids up for the day. Um, just like they would take them to play football or, or whatever, they would take them skiing it's in the same way, so, like a national sport. So it could Got be it. that in you know Denver, it might be the same. I don't know. Yeah, it might be, and I have no idea. Like I said, I'm not like ingrained in that community at all, either of them, the public school system or the you know ski system. But uh, now that you've mentioned it, I'll probably reach out. I know a couple of uh, school teachers who are on, on the board on of, uh, I know one person who's like on the board of the school district in Aurora, I think. So I'll reach out to her and find out if that is a thing that they do. And maybe we can talk about it some more. Um, let, let's talk about, about marriage, for, for instance. Now, obviously, you guys have been married. I don't know how, how long you guys have been married, and you, know, you certainly can't tell me, but um, we've talked about you know, having similar interests. Uh, sorry? 
How many years? Like we can never remember. Never remember. We've been married for twenty five years. Oh wow, that that's a long time. Like uh, a lot of like, it's not easy to maintain a marriage, particularly in in this generation. What are some of the things you can advise to like up and coming couples, or you know, people who have been married for a short time, or people who want to be married sometime in the future? Uh, how do you think uh, people can sustain a lasting relationship and be a true partner, uh, particularly in marriage? From your experience, of course. I think it helps if you have hobbies that you share, like sports and things that you both like doing. Um, and also, I think it helps if you share things like the cooking and things in the house, in the household, share them rather than one person having to do it, just the woman having to do it. If you both do it together, I think it makes it work better. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, we've both been, we were both married before. When I, for um, a short time. For a short time. And uh, uh, when we got together, Felice said, look, you know, we're going to have to, we do the same job, so we're going to have to do all the other things, like the washing and the cooking. I mean, I said, what? You know, <laughs> I'm not good about this. Um, and I wasn't really good about washing machines, but uh, she said, well, I'll, I'll deal with the washing machine, but you have to really learn how to cook. And I love eating, and I never really bothered to learn to cook, so I got myself a book, and within a week, I didn't really wander in my kitchen. I was too busy, you know, and become a passion ever since. So we do think together. We don't think about who's going to cook a dinner. We want to we both like cycling we both like hiking so we lots of things we like doing together and we have our dogs we have two dogs got it got it i mean i totally agree i mean i've been in a relationship and this is not com- being compared to being married but i've been in a relationship where you know m- my podcast always got on our nerves like anytime I-, I woke up late late at night to edit the episode or whenever i said oh i'm sorry i i i, I can't meet you till like two hours later because I-, I have an interview scheduled like it always got on our nerves and she never listened like not even a single episode and we're together for like three four months like she never listened so like uh in a sense uh i don't know if that contributed to why the relationship ended but it would have certainly would have probably gone more than three four months if she was not necessarily a podcaster but maybe was into a few episodes i tried my best to be into what she was into uh, even though i had just like peter i had to educate myself also <laughs> about what she liked but um you know, it wasn't as as much effort from her side. So I, I guess that makes sense because I would imagine I've never been married, but I'd imagine you know sometimes you need uh, you, you living with someone for for a prolonged period of time it makes it easier if you do things together and you have that bond that can you know sustain you uh, beyond you know the traditional love and things like that. So I think above all else, you've got to be best friends. You know, each um, mm. other's best friend, and um, that's very important. You also need to give each other a bit of space too, so that you can. You know, if you want to go, if you want to go and do something, you can do it. If I want to go and do something, I can do it. And it's, uh, mm. uh, it's, it, it has to be a lot of give and take. Definitely. So maybe you need to meet a female podcaster. That's the answer. Ah, well, I, I wouldn't, if you guys can introduce me to one of them, I'm just kidding. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that'll be pretty interesting. That'll be pretty interesting. <laughs> Is there something, is there like a, a, an objective? So I like to ask people, is there like a, a grand vision you guys are pursuing with, you know, your independent uh, journalist business or with your website? Is there something you kind of like want to achieve or you're just kind of like having fun along the way while you're earning your income and trying to live out your best life? I think that's the one. I think we're just trying to have fun along the way, earn you know, money to live on and have a, a good lifestyle, which involves some traveling. So that's important to that's both important. of us. Yeah. yeah. 
Got it. Got it. Got it. Pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. I mean, what can you um, talk to some of our listeners about some resources for people who might be interested in skiing uh, that, you know, they can get their hands on maybe some websites or, you know, a particular journal or a, a good place to start, you know, something like that. Yeah, we, we have our own ski website apart from uh, Action Pack. It's mm-hmm. called we, we love to ski.com. We love and number two ski. We love number two ski.com. And uh, that is an, an, it's an online magazine uh, in a way, I guess. It gives you a huge amount of information about different ski resorts and equipment and where to do it, how to be a beginner. It's it's an enormous amount of information on that. So it's a good point. We always say to everybody, if you want to find out about skiing or think about to go skiing, take a look at welovetoski.com. Got it. Got it. Okay. It's been pretty interesting getting to talk to you guys. I always like to give my guests a couple of minutes at the end of the episode. If there's a question uh, you wish I asked or something you want to talk about, or if you want to just throw some, you know, goodwill out there into the universe, or, you know, you want to promote some of the things you're currently doing, uh, whatever it is you want to do, uh, you guys kind of like have the floor before we uh, end the episode. Um, mine's gone blank at that. Um, well, we've told you about our podcast <clears throat> and our website. Mm-hmm. Um so I think... Um, no, we're just waiting for an end to COVID-19. I mean, that's the problem, really. For all, everything, the world has changed. And uh, until we have a vaccine, the world is going to continue to be completely abnormal. Mm. Meanwhile, we have to live with the situation we've got. And we're going to go out there and ski this winter in a mask, no doubt. Uh, but it's, we have to live... We have to go on doing what we do. You can't just stop and say, well, the world's come to a halt. We have to get on with it. Yeah, I think you have to try and think positively. Got it, got it. Well, let me ask you this before we end the episode. Let me kind of like being a podcaster myself. So a lot of podcasters don't have that traditional media training. Uh, you guys have both been joining us, so you've had that traditional media training. What are some of the things you, you think you can, some of the advice you think you can give to up-and-coming podcasters or, you know, podcasters who are already doing it that you can kind of borrow from the traditional media world in order to make our craft uh, better? It's difficult. You, you, if you're a podcaster, you are... Uh... And you're the editor and you're the reporter and you're the interviewer. You're everything in one. And it's important to keep a, a clear vision of where you want to go and what you're doing. It's very easy to get very biased about something, go down one side of a story and not tell the whole story. So if you're interviewing people on something controversial, make sure you tell both sides of the story. I think that's really mm. important. Oh, that can... uh, yeah, just have fun doing it. We, meanwhile, have fun doing yeah, it. Yeah, we, we love doing it. And um, and I think it's not difficult. You don't need to have a journalistic background at all. No. Yeah. Lots of people just have something they're really interested in and want to tell people about. And there'll be someone out there who wants to listen to it. And yeah. lots of people had to learn lots of new skills down the line. And when I worked in radio, back in those days, which was in the 1970s, um, you, you cut up audio tape with a razor blade and scotch tape. That's kind of changed now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The new editing skills to learn, but it's not difficult. And the great thing about podcasting is that the whole podcasting community supports each other. Mm-hmm. Not like learning where it's dog eats dog. Everybody works together and is really interested in helping you. I, I find that very refreshing. Yeah. I think yeah. there's great podcasting communities on things like Facebook as well. I think that's how we met. Um, so people will always give you advice and they're always, you know, other podcasters always seem to want to help out each other, which is good. Yeah, most definitely. One other thing was to try and find people who don't say um every third word. I spent my life taking the ums out of the whole thing. (laughs) 
Well, I say a lot of ums. I used to say a lot of ums. Maybe I still do. <laughs> and I think a phrase I always used to say also is uh, got it. I'll say, oh, got it, got it, got it. So my producer, I'm like, can you... Uh, reduce the Gotti thing. I'm like, ah, it just comes naturally. But but yeah, we'll certainly be taking that to heart. And yeah, that's the thing I love about podcasters that is such a supportive like, community. Hopefully we remain like that because the tech industry when they just started was supportive as well. But as we started getting the Googles and the Facebook and the IBMs, you know, it started becoming like a huge competition. But maybe we can maintain this for as long as we can. So yeah, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you kind of like, you know, dipping my toes in the water, just getting to know a little bit about skiing. Um, if you guys want, if our listeners want to learn more about skiing, if you want to be involved in skiing, we'll have a lot of links uh, on the show notes so you can check out We Love to Ski. You can check out uh, Action Pack, their podcast, and you can, you know, reach out to them. Particularly, uh, whenever you guys next come to Colorado when all this is over, uh, please reach out. Uh, if I'm still living in the city, uh, I'll love to connect on a personal level. Thank you, Steve. Sorry, we'll take, we'll take you skiing. Oh, oh, that'll be a that'll be a thought. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All thank right, guys. Thank you very much for having us on the show. It's been great. Very good to talk. Yeah, to we've you. really enjoyed it. Most definitely, most definitely. It's been Culture Class Podcast. If you've been listening, and follow us on social media. It's Culture Class Podcast everywhere. On Twitter, it's Culture Class Pod. Tell us what you think. We've been doing a lot of. We've been experimenting with a lot of things. Uh, we, we have a, a Facebook uh, page which is new, um, so check that out as well. Send us an email, culturalclasspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, uh, be well. <laughs>